Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 236, Turkey Science versus Turkey Fiction, with Mike Chamberlain. And I am your host, and the guy who is now working on his honeydew list. The reason that I'm doing that now is because we are 318 days, 12 hours, 15 minutes, and 50 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. So my wife and I spent a good bit of time in the yard this weekend, cleaning up a little bit, planting some plants, and I don't know, we're probably a third of the way through doing what we need to do. So that is about what my next two weekends look like, yard work. But hopefully it'll look good afterwards and I'll get the pool opened and be able to get in the pool and cool off with a nice little dip. All right, I'm going to be quick again today because I have an incredible interview for you guys that I really think you're going to enjoy. And before I get into that interview, I'm excited to tell you guys that we have a winner of the Strut Commander Box Call Giveaway. Winner, winner, turkey dinner. After I gave you guys a hint last week, the guesses came pouring in. The most common guesses were there were three hunters with guns pointed all in the same direction, not having a talk with our new turkey hunter before getting into the woods, not being aggressive enough to get John, our designated shooter, to move as soon as the turkey gobbled when he was on the ground. Now on that one, please realize that you are correct, but our designated shooter was to my left and the turkey was to my right. So I was between the shooter and the turkey. No, nobody's going to shoot in that situation. There is no reason to move in that situation. And besides, I thought that Joey would have an opportunity to move and get a shot at that turkey, the direction the turkey came in. But Joey couldn't see him when the gobbler was very close to us. Again, those are all good answers, but not the one that I was looking for until I got Steve Hughes's guess. Steve guessed that my screw up was when I purred on my slate after seeing the gobbler and that caused me to get busted. Hey, it was a lesson relearned for me. I knew better. I know better. I was just kind of caught up in the moment hoping that I could 
get that turkey to stop for just a second to hang in there with us for a few seconds longer in hopes that Joey could get a shot at him. Or that he may circle a little bit more in front of us and John would get a shot at him. It just didn't work out that way. So the takeaway from that hunt is that we should never call to a turkey that we can see and that is in range when we do not have any decoys out. That gobbler knew as soon as I called that he had screwed up and he wisely retreated in the same direction that he came from. So Steve guessed it first and is our big winner of the Strut Commander Tempest box call. So Steve, shoot me an email to andy at iamturkeyhunting.com with your mailing address and I'll get that call out to you. Okay, thank you to all of you who entered the contest. I thought that was a lot of fun and I hope that you guys enjoyed picking apart that awesome turkey hunt. All right, now let's move on. This week, I'm very excited to bring you guys this interview with Mike Chamberlain, who is a professor in wildlife and and ecology management and a wildlife biologist at the University of Georgia. Mike and I are tackling some of the propaganda that floats around on social media about wild turkey management and wild turkey habitat management as well. This interview is a long one because I couldn't stop asking Mike questions. I had follow-up question after follow-up question for Mike, and he was kind enough to keep answering them. And I was thoroughly enjoying every minute of our talk. I know you will too. Here's Mike Chamberlain, and I'll see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, I am glad to tell you that I have on the phone with me today Mike Chamberlain, who is a wildlife biologist and a professor at the University of Georgia. And I got turned on to Mike about a week or so ago from the Wild Turkey Report Twitter account. And they just happened to retweet something that Mike had posted on Facebook, which I thought was pretty interesting. And I got to looking at that post and said, hey, there's an opportunity for a long conversation here, probably longer than Mike wants to have with me about some of the information in his post. And so I tracked him down and tricked Mike into coming on the show. Mike, how are you and where are you this morning? I'm doing well, Andy. I'm sitting here in Georgia recovering from a a day of field work yesterday that was pretty hot and pretty buggy. Oh yeah, I bet. So tell us a little bit about yourself and I understand you and I've now had, I don't know, 20 minutes of conversation, but I understand from talking to you and from looking at your social media accounts that you're a pretty avid hunter. So tell us a little bit about how you got into turkey hunting as well. Yeah, so I grew up like like a lot of folks, just suburban kid. I had a dad that, that hunted on the weekends, worked really hard. So Saturday was our, that was our day to get out in the in the woods and chase whatever was in season or fish or whatever we could do to to be outside and spend time together and mm-hmm. from there i ended up I, you know, I basically hunted anything that i could that i could hunt and i ended up going to virginia tech to get an undergraduate degree in wildlife science and once i did i ended up in graduate school studying turkeys i, I really didn't i wasn't driven to study turkeys per se i I really just wanted to study any species that I could that I could because I was interested in pretty much everything at that time and 
once I got into graduate school and started studying this bird, I became fascinated with, with what they do, how they behave. And then I guess the natural conduit from there is to end up being a turkey hunter. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't actually hunt turkeys as a youngster. I did a little, you know, growing up in, in central Virginia, we had a, we had a fall turkey season and a, and a spring season. And I kind of dabbled in everything. Honestly, I, I deer hunted a lot. I, hunted small game, I hunted waterfowl, I hunted turkeys. I, I I would say I was a turkey hunter by trade at that time. I really just, I hunted anything that was in season just to, to get outside and, you know, not be stuck in the house. And I guess through time, you know, I've, I've, as you noted, I'm an active hunter. I, I my wife actually would I'd probably classify it as being fanatical. Uh, I'll hunt anything. I'll hunt anything that, that I can. I love the thrill of the chase. Yeah. So you got your undergrad at Virginia Tech, and then was it Mississippi State from there for grad? That's right. That's right. That's right. I went to Mississippi State and and did my master's degree working on turkeys, and then was offered an opportunity to stay and continue studying turkeys as well as predators that eat them as part of my PhD. So my my dissertation work was looking at turkeys and predation of of turkeys by, I studied bobcats, coyotes, foxes, raccoons, anything that would eat a nest or an adult was, that was kind of the focus of my work. And then from there, I I went to LSU and worked as a faculty member there for a little more than a decade, doing pretty much the same thing I do here at the University of Georgia, where I've been for the last eight years. Okay. Now, your graduate studies were in predation what and I know you're in that professor level now so you probably aren't just studying one particular aspect about wild turkeys you're being involved in several different research projects that a lot of your graduate Mm -hmm. students are doing but what what are some of the studies that you've done over the past several years involving turkeys most of my work the past five six seven years has either focused on one of three things the the most being probably just reproductive ecology you know, nesting nest success brood survival mm-hmm. those types of things second would be uh, gobbling activity and looking at the chronology of gobbling when it starts when it stops it when it peaks if it even does how it's influenced by hunting activity is is gobbling occurring when the states think it should be occurring relative to their their hunting season frameworks that would be the second and then the third would would certainly be prescribed fire and how fire is influencing turkey movements turkey nesting brooding etc yeah okay i hope you have about eight or nine hours to stay on the phone with me today because i have a lot of questions (laughs) for you (laughs) well i do not (laughs) Uh, i don't think i could really talk that much so I, I think you're safe but i have that many questions to ask you but i just don't think i could physically talk that much so i think you'll be all right so well instead of going that route we can just do multiple podcasts rather <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah i like that yeah. idea too yeah that way we get a little bit of a break and you know maybe take a nap here and there somewhere along the line sure so, yeah sure Maybe squeeze in a turkey hunt as well, so that would be yeah, good. That would be that would be good. The season's winding down. Yes, it is. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you're pretty active on social media, and I know you can't help but see some of the posts from what I'm going to call the weekend warrior biologists that are on Facebook and Twitter, and those are the the posts that are put on there by 
oh, let's just say the owner of a local mortgage company in Birmingham that absolutely, without a doubt, exclamation on the exclamation point on the end of the statement knows exactly why our turkey populations in a lot of states are declining and why the hunting is not as good. And Mm -hmm. I just want to maybe address a few of the arguments that some of these weekend warrior biologists make on social media. And the first one that seems to be, uh, I hate to even use the word (laughs) hot, but it seems to be a big topic for many people and many of these weekend warrior biologists is growing season burns. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. can you, because you have studied them a great deal, can you burning period, can you tell me a little bit about growing season burns, what they are and why they're beneficial as well as why they are controversial? And then I've got a follow-up question to that as well. Sure. Sure. So uh, by definition, a growing season fire is simply a, a fire that's applied to a stand at a time after green up with the purpose in mind being that the fire will behave differently than it would have behaved if it had been applied in the dormant season, say December, January, February. And by behave, I mean, it, it, they tend to be a little hotter in the growing season because air temperatures are higher mm-hmm. you once woody plants have have started to green up if you burn them you tend to get better control of woody plants and you tend to stimulate plants that are more grassy forbs and the reason that managers do that is because they are trying to create and maintain habitats that are like that that are not dominated by sweet gum and other woody plants that tend to benefit from a dormant season fire. So if you drive around our landscape and you look, many agencies burn during the winter, and they do that routinely. What you produce is a a habitat that's dominated by three or four woody plants, uh, yopon, sweet gum, depending on where you are, there's a predictable group of plants that benefit from that type of fire. And And that's not turkey habitat, as well as habitat for a variety of other species. So you see the application of growing season fire in situations where managers want to push, if you will, the habitat towards grassy, low-growing forbs, etc., because of the the species that are adapted to living in those types of stands. The the controversy, while it's it's there's a lot to discuss as far as the controversy goes and and i get it you you have this notion which was partially why i posted that that one particular post that prompted you to contact me on the surface you you look at a stand that's been burned in let's say april and you're you're left almost aghast that why did they do this what why did they burn this stand while quail and turkeys and, and these other species are nesting surely they destroyed all the nests that were in this stand, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to jump to the conclusion that this is bad and then perpetuate that. And, and, and in reality, it, it's not, with the caveat that, which I noted in that post, that like every other tool we have, fire can be used inappropriately. Right. And growing season fire is certainly something that could be used inappropriately. But the point is that if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding, 
that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. Okay. So you had mentioned to me in our previous conversation that dormant season fire, when it kind of brings about that woody regrowth from after the fire, that that actually is more conducive to predators than it is to wild turkeys. That, that's right. And and what we found is, and if, if you, I, I try to tell people, if you ever want to look at habitat or landscape as a turkey sees it, just squat down on your knees. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if you can see over what's around you, then a turkey has a fighting chance. And if you can't, if your vision is obstructed, then so is theirs. And they make a living by being able to see first and foremost. That's how, that's how turkeys evade predators is sight. So if you burn stands routinely with, with dormant season fires, so let's say every three years you burn this stand and you do it in December or January, I will promise you what you're going to end up with through time is mostly woody plant. And what we found is that if turkeys have to, they'll use that. If that's what they have available to them, that's what they use. Mm-hmm. But you also tend to see greater use of those stands by raccoons. And one of the one of the reasons is that type of fire also tends to stimulate plants like blackberry that produce a soft mass that's high, you know, it's quality raccoon forage there. Mm-hmm. So you tend to see that that fires in the winter end up producing habitat that actually becomes better for predators than it does for the bird. And that, it, to me, it, it goes to not just the vision that they lack in these stands that are mostly woody, but it also goes to the forage that's produced for species that, that eat turkeys or their eggs. Okay. So these growing season burns oftentimes appear that they're destroying nests, but in fact, the post that you put on Facebook, you had mentioned in the post that the picture of the nest that was burned, of the eggs in that nest that were burned, you mentioned that that nest actually hatched. That's correct. Yep. Is there kind of a, has the research been done to give us kind of a number of how many nests are actually destroyed by a particular fire? And I know every fire is different because the temperature intensity and so on and so forth. But in the studies that have been done with this, is are there any results from that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We Much of my work the past six, seven years has been on public lands managed primarily with prescribed fire. And what we see on those properties is that when, when the agency is using a routine fire return interval, meaning every three years, for instance, they mm-hmm. burn this stand again, that, that in reality nest loss to fire is in the single digits percent. Wow. Very, very few nests are lost. Now, of course, anyone, and I'm not naive enough to think that on all properties, that's the case. You, right. you could have a, a large scale four or 5,000 acre fire occur in April, and you would certainly expect to lose more nests than if you had a 200 acre fire. I mean, we all understand that. And that goes back to the notion that fire could absolutely be used inappropriately. There's no question. Mm-hmm. So what I'm speaking here is in generalities. But what what our data have shown on the studies, on the properties that we've worked on, which include, again, all public lands, that nest loss to fire is, is slight. 
and two other things play into kind of that statement. One was like the nest in that post. That nest actually ended up hatching. Now, some of the eggs didn't hatch, obviously, if you look sure. at the, the picture, one of the one of the eggs was singed. But the point was of that post partially, I think I had a lot of points to that particular post, but one was you know, everything's not black and white. And in reality, that bird came back to that nest. She incubated the, the clutch and she hatched most of those eggs. And we've seen that a number of times that either the fire doesn't consume the nest or she ends up nesting in what's called a fire shadow. And, and all of us have seen this and, and maybe didn't realize that was what we were seeing, but a spot or a, a drainage or something in a stand that was burned that did not burn. So the fire actually mm. crept around the spot. Right. And she just returns to the site and continues incubating. And you would think, well, that's horrible. But if you think about it, what ha- what most predators do, raccoons, bobcats, coyotes, etc., is after a fire event, they don't use the stand. Mm-hmm. Well, if she returns to the stand and she continues her business as usual, which is what we found happens in many, many cases, that's not a bad thing. The, the other the other way to view that is most birds renest. And and I've if you look through <laughs> if you look through the comments on a lot of my posts, you'll see that no, they don't. I know that they don't renest, et cetera. And that's completely and patently false. Yeah. We 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 find that renesting occurs on every property. We find that renesting can be quite high in some populations, well over fifty percent, mm-hmm. meaning that more than half of the birds that lose their first clutch try again. Some try three times, some try even four times, and some of those nests hatch. So this notion that, well, if we burn this nest up, which would, again, would be unfortunate, but is not a common occurrence across the landscape, you, you're going, in many cases, going to have a bird that ends up giving it another shot. Um, now, some will argue, and this is partially true, in some populations that renesting is not generally as successful. And what, what they mean by that is the second clutches are usually smaller, and, and they are. They, mm-hmm. they tend to be one egg you know, maybe two eggs smaller than the initial clutch. Okay. But the point is that this bird is, turkeys are prolific. And if you think about millennia ago, when this bird was living in the southeast, they were linked to fire. This this landscape that we live on, and I'm looking out my window in, in northeast Georgia, and the pine forest in this part of the world were burned historically. And this bird lives here. So they're they're inextricably linked to fire disturbances. They've dealt with it for many, many, many years, decades, right? So they know how to react in the presence of this disturbance. So that's why I kind of encourage people to kind of take a step back and think about it from the bigger picture. You know, how would this bird behave in the presence of this this disturbance? Yeah, this is something you mentioned just a minute ago, but in our earlier conversation as well, we talked about how are some of the ways that fire can be used improperly and mm-hmm. we talked about these larger scale burns where there was you know 1500 2000 acres 4000 acres being burned what research if any has been done to show whether or not these larger scale burns are better or worse for turkeys mm-hmm. yeah so the the scale issue you know so we've kind of covered the timing Mm-hmm. You know, growing versus dormant season. The scale issue is where it gets where it gets really tricky. And I do the, the short answer is yes. We we have not published this work yet. In fact, 
the the student that's working with me on this particular project is finishing up his his dissertation work right now in fact he will this summer we will have this work out for those that are interested to see it but yeah but what we're seeing is that that scale does matter and not only does scale matter shape matters and what i mean by shape is you know we can't predict every every fire on the landscape is different and we and we can't we have to kind of simplify in our minds how the shape of a fire would matter so in other words you know a stand that is big but is narrow is different than a stand that's big and square, mm-hmm. those types of things. But that matters. And, and what we're seeing is that both scale and shape matters to the turkeys. The bigger the fire, the more likely you're going to create habitat in the center of the stand that turkeys don't use. And they don't use it for several, if not up to many weeks after the fire. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because they need escape cover. So if you burn a, a huge block of forest, they perceive the center of that to be non-habitat. I'm not going in there because there's nowhere to escape if, if something chases me. Right. So, yes, scale matters. Now, I can't tell you at this point what is too big, but sure. I will tell you that what our data suggests is that the smaller, the better. So... When you when you graph out what's the probability that a turkey is going to use this stand after it's burned, you see that it's quite high. If you're talking fires that are 50, 100, 200, 300 acres ish, and then once you start getting in the four or five hundred acre range, you start seeing this slow decline in our predicted use by turkeys. In other words, are are they going to do do it or not? Are they going to use the stand or not? It starts creeping down. And then once you get in the seven, eight, nine hundred acre range, it's there's a precipitous drop. And then once you get out, you know, several thousand acres, it's almost zero. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, if a turkey's living on a landscape and that's all they have available to them and you burn the whole thing, they're going to do their best and try to use what they can. That's, I mean, but that's not the scenario that we would obviously want. So I think what the outcome of our work is going to be is that in many situations, some fires that are applied are too big. And then it will be up to agencies to either change or not. Um, and and I, this is such a complex situation because, as you noted, every fire is different. And, and we as human beings, we unfortunately, we, ha- we have to generalize things. We have to say, okay, well, you're not going to burn bigger than this or you're not going to burn bigger than that or whatever. And then we apply that broadly. That's what we do as, as humans. Mm-hmm. And, and that may not be the best scenario, but I think we're going to have to take a step back and realize that fire in and of itself is not bad. And fire in and of itself is not the reason that this bird is declining across the southeast. It's that simple. But could we use this tool better? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think there's any question that there are better fire prescriptions in some situations that are being used. Could they be smaller? Very likely. Could they be timed at a different time? Maybe. It's going to now be our jobs as as hunters and managers and scientists to work with agencies, if if that's the case, to, to tweak how we apply fire to the landscape. And, and some agencies may not, I mean, some landowners may not be interested in changing the way that they use prescribed fire. 
but I would like to hope that the science will guide our decisions to, to manage the landscape moving forward. Yeah. So maybe once this research has been published, we can go in, read a little bit more about that, and then start. Instead of just getting on social media and posting random thoughts, we'll have some science that we can, in fact, go to the people that make the decisions about these burns and maybe make an argument to do things a little bit differently than some of them are doing. Absolutely. And, and you know, I don't I don't fault people, per se, for, for making thoughts known on social media. I mean, I, I, I have that luxury. I, I do that, and, and everyone is entitled to their opinion. And, and you know, turkey turkey hunters, I've said this many times in many forums, Turkey hunters are a really cerebral group by and large. They, mm-hmm. they, they use their heads. They think they are passionate about this bird. Not saying that other, you know, folks that hunt other species are not, but man, turkey hunters are, are different to me. And, and I get, I get it. I understand the concern. I understand the frustration. You know, I, I cherish this bird. I've spent my life working with this bird mm-hmm. and it frustrates me to see you know that populations are not doing well in some areas and and as i travel around and i talk with people i i I get the tangible sense from almost everyone i talk to that they share that frustration and their concern just like i am and we all want the same end result we just have different perspectives and different thoughts on how to get there and it you know in this day and age it's easy for people to get on facebook or whatever it is and 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 post information and that that's fine again they have that the right to do that but i would like to hope as we do with with other in other situations for instance if you think about a medical doctor would you go to your doctor and ask for their opinion on something that's bothering you and then completely dismiss their opinion and go do something different well perhaps but i wouldn't think that would be a wise decision and i I use that analogy because that's what I see people doing in many, many situations when we're talking about wildlife in general, uh, and specific to this conversation about turkeys and fire, is they they almost summarily dismiss information that's that's available. Talking about well, how do turkeys respond to fire, or how do bobwhites respond to fire, and that that's troubling to me. Yeah, yeah. All right, one more. Th- question for you about fire and then we're going to move on to something else that's I think a concern and a hot button for all of us and that's predation but what during the the studies that where you've looked at these growing season burns we talked about the nesting part of it but what how much of an effect does it have on the poults are we losing poults to these fires yeah so the short answer is no we of all the of all the fires that we've had birds use we've had one instance of a of a brood that was lost and the reason for that is really quite simple these hens take broods to stands that are not scheduled to be burned they these stands that are scheduled to be burned are thick brushy dense nasty if you will right and these broods are going to open park-like, grassy, you know, sparse understory, lots of visibility. So if you're if you're looking at a landscape that's burned, these broods are actually going to stands that were burned last year mm-hmm. or two years before, mm-hmm. not not scheduled to be burned this year. So that's why we see very little brood loss 
because they're not even using stands that are ready to be burned. Very interesting. It makes a lot of sense because nesting habitat and brood habitat are not necessarily the same. So, In fact, yeah, they are quite different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you these birds, the, the only time a hen is going to use habitat that looks like nesting cover when she has a brood is if she's trying to get them out of it. <laughs> I mean, they, uh, they don't want to be there. They, and that's why you, you always see that when they hatch, they skedaddle. They, they get those poults and they get them out of that spot because nesting cover is not brood cover. Nesting cover is I need to squat down and hide or I need to sit here where I can see. And that's basically what we, that's what we see with, with turkey nest. There's two types of nests. There's nests that are kind of in the open that, and we've all seen this as hunters, you bump into a nest or find a nest. There's a nest that's kind of open where she can sit there and see around her, mm-hmm. presumably because she thinks, you know what, if something comes after me, I can get away from it. Or there's the nest that's in just the dense jungle and presumably we're thinking, well, she's trying to hide. Either way, she's going to move that brood away from that nest after she hatches and get them somewhere that doesn't look like nesting habitat. Yeah, okay. That's good to know, and that makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about predation. And I want to talk, I guess, on both nest predation and adult predation and poultry mm-hmm. predation as well. So in the studies that you've been involved in or studies that you've read, has there been really any kind of determination made if nest predation is a more common occurrence than poult and or adult hen, or not even hen, but adult predation? Yeah, so loss of nest and poults is certainly, it certainly exceeds the loss of adults. So nest predation is quite high. In fact, most nests fail. We we see that on average, around 20% of all nests are successful, which is which is low, frankly. Mm-hmm. And nest predators include anything that you can imagine that would eat an egg. Everything from bobcats, foxes, snakes, raccoons, anything that would consume an egg is subject to eat an, a nest. Mm-hmm. The poults. Again, a lot of things eat poults, everything from, from hawks and owls to, again, your cats, your, your foxes, your coyotes, anything that would chase a young bird. So you, you have this broad suite of predators that eat the eggs, that eat the poults, and the adults are pretty much, outside of human beings, adult predators are pretty much restricted to your larger, your bobcats, coyotes, foxes, mm-hmm. horned owls, great horned owls we see will routinely kill adults, including adult males. You have a, you know, horned owls are, on some on some areas, are quite are, are quite an important predator. We we lose, in fact, this this study site that I visited yesterday, which is not far from my home, we lose adult toms every year to horned owls. Well, and not just not just one here and there. We they kill adults on the roost, presumably when they're gobbling in the morning. That's my hypothesis. I can't I can't prove it yet, but I, I think I will at some point. I think what's happening is these birds are keying in on toms when they start vocalizing in the morning, mm-hmm. and he never knows what you know what's hit what hits him, if you will, because horned owls are they leave a very distinctive trail of sign when they kill a bird. So it's pretty easy to tell what you're looking at when you find them. And, and they are important predators of, 
the males. Yeah, that's interesting. I knew that they were predators of poults, and I just recently read, and I can't remember which book it was, but I just recently read a book where they'd mentioned that, you know, the old timer saying that owls would knock adult turkeys in the head or just basically knock them off the roost and, you know, from that point, kill them and eat them. And I thought, I've never heard that, but it is totally feasible. It makes sense. Oh, they absolutely do. They 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 hit them, and and you can see where if they can, once they grab the bird, they actually carry it off the roost. So they hit them, and then you'll see a you know, 30, 40 yard trail of feathers that you can kind of envision were left from above as the owl was riding the bird down to the ground. So the momentum of them hitting the bird and then carrying the bird through space and then finally dropping, you know, riding the bird, if you will, down to the ground. It's distinctive. Wow, that's crazy. All right, I want to ask you a question about hogs because it just, everyone's on hogs. Hogs mm-hmm. are the devil. And personally, I don't think I disagree with that just because of the damage that they do to an area and to crops and so on and so forth. They're they're certainly a nuisance animal. But how much of a nest predator is a wild hog? Do you think they're searching out nests to destroy or they're just possibly destroying nests that they run across while they're rooting around? What what effect do hogs have on nesting? The the verdict is still out on that a bit. There there's a, there's research ongoing in a number of places kind of evaluating the, the hog situation. The the bottom line is hogs are a nuisance they're they're awful they we don't have any evidence to suggest that hogs key in on nests but they are certainly going to consume the nest if they encounter it so that's kind of a, a no-brainer i kind of look at hogs as the devil like like you said and, and they everything associated with a feral pig is a problem for a turkey they they consume resources that turkeys use so they're a direct form of competition for food. They degrade their environment through reductions in water quality. Mm-hmm. Um, they change the soil horizons. They disturb soil. They alter seed banks. All of that is bad for a turkey. So I kind of look at hogs as I don't really consider them nest predators. I know they, I mean, obviously, yes, they do eat nests. Sure. But I kind of just look at the hog as being just a problem all around for a turkey and various other species for those same reasons. Yeah. Okay. All right. So staying on this nesting topic that we're on, you posted recently, I think it was on Facebook. It may have been Twitter or both. I don't know, but there was a photo that you showed of a nest that had something like 26 eggs in it. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you talked about parasitic and host nesting. And can you explain that? phenomenon a little bit for us and tell us how common is it yeah so that that's a really interesting behavior and and we know that lots of birds are parasitic but if you look at the turkey literature you don't see a lot of discussion of it and so to back up a little bit if, if you read audubon's original writings of his travels in north america in the 1830s he reports of a situation where he observed three birds communally incubating a nest Mm -hmm. and we don't we don't see that but we do see that these birds dump nest we'll see that they are you know parasitic they'll lay a single egg or multiple eggs and 
the clutch of other of other hens. It appears to be prevalent in every population. We we see it at least a single occurrence in every group of birds that we mark. So in other words, if we if we go here on this wildlife management area and we we mark 30 birds and we look at their nest, we'll find at least one that's parasitic. And these parasites, they they will often lay their own clutch as well. So they will lay, say, a single egg in somebody else's clutch or multiple eggs, and then they will go and lay and incubate their own clutch. We see other situations where several hens will lay in the same nest. So you may have three or four hens that all dump eggs in this one nest, which is that picture that I posted that you referenced. That's what that was. That was a, a number of hens had, had dropped eggs in that clutch. Mm-hmm. And and it the strategy makes sense if you think about it in in many ways. I'll go put one of my eggs in somebody else's basket and let them hatch it. And if that nest is successful and my nest is successful, then I raise I have more poults than the host, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it, it it makes sense. And again, a lot of a lot of ground dwelling birds do that they will become parasitic. What I'm struggling to understand is kind of the consequences of that behavior. And it, it may there may not be many consequences, but the bird that strategy has evolved presumably in response to something. And in, in many other birds, it's a response to predation. Mm-hmm. So you have a population of a of a bird that has really high predation rates and therefore a strategy evolves where, you know what, chances of me hatching are pretty low. So what I'm going to do is put an egg in a couple of different nests, and then I'm going to try my, my, my own nest, and hopefully one of my eggs will hatch and be successful. And if that's what's driving this behavior in turkeys, it does make sense to me that this bird perceives the landscape as being very risky and predation rates are really high. And therefore this strategy is in place to try to mitigate some of that. I'm not saying that that's occurring. This is, this is somewhat speculative on my part, but it makes sense to me when I step back and look at it. Yeah. I mean, that's really fascinating to me and it's kind of mind blowing. If you think about it, that, that, motherly instinct that instinct for the species to survive is that strong and that intuitive but you know i can't imagine it takes more than one or two nests to be destroyed for a hen turkey to realize hey i'm not having much luck here and i need to so yeah you know parasitism would be something that would evolve across decades and decades and decades it you know it wouldn't act per se on an individual level um but you would see, yes, you would see through time that, you know what, this strategy of just trying this on my own is not working. Mm-hmm. And this, this, is, this is something that's been observed in turkeys many, many times. And in a, in a conversation last year with, a, with someone I have a tremendous amount of respect for, a, a guy named Bill Healy, who used to study turkeys for a living and, and retired years ago he used to imprint birds to himself he would hatch the the clutches and imprint the birds to himself Mm -hmm. and then observe their behavior and what he told me that relates to this is that these hens that would that would parasitize each other now granted he's in a pen these birds are in a you know in a pen but they did not want other hens to see them when they were laying in other words this bird bird a 
she goes and starts laying a clutch. She doesn't like other birds to see her do that. She doesn't want to be seen going to the nest. Mm-hmm. And and he noted that, of course, these birds perceived him as a turkey. So he told me, he said, you know, look, if I was standing there, she wouldn't go lay. She would walk around and pace around, but she would not walk over to her nest and lay an egg in my presence. And he thought at the time that that was predation driven, that, okay, I, I'm not going to allow something to watch me walk over to my clutch. Mm-hmm. But, in, but in retrospect, when he and I were talking about this, he, he conceded. He said, Mike, you might, that might be right. Maybe it's that this is a strategy that's always been in play with this bird. And, and in reality, she didn't want potential parasite to see her go to her clutch because then the parasite would know where the, the eggs were and would know where to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty interesting possibility. And to, to kind of drive that home, we're seeing that in, in many, many cases, the parasitic female hung around with the host female during the laying sequence. So we've all seen this. Mm-hmm. So you go out in the spring and there's three hens that are hanging around together and they fly down in the morning and they mill around and they forage. And then at some point during the day, bird number one sneaks away and she lays an egg and she comes back. And then, you know, at the same time, bird number two does it, bird number three does it. And so these birds, they are together in the morning and then they're separated and then they're together again. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes sense that the parasite hangs around with the host and that that's very likely when they're seeing the opportunity to be a parasite. Hey, I just saw that bird walk over in that area tomorrow or later today. I'm going to go check that area out and see, see what's over there. And lo and behold, there you go. There's, there's a a clutch that she's laying. I'll go ahead and drop one of my eggs in that clutch. Yeah. Yeah. I've got trail camera photos of two hens that are kind of doing that now on, on uh, a piece of property that I own south of Birmingham. And I see them in the mornings on the camera together. I see them in the afternoons on the camera together. Rarely am I seeing them midday together. But that doesn't mean that they're not together. I'm just not getting pictures of them together. So, you know, I have no way to confirm like you guys do with the with the radio callers and all that, I don't have any way of doing any of that to know for sure, but that's pretty interesting. And, and you know, just to know that that's a possibility of an explanation of what's going on is is pretty neat. So do you think that the parasitic and host nesting has any effect on prolonging the breeding season for these hens? No, no, I don't think so. I, I think probably, you know, you're talking a few eggs, so... It would, yeah, I mean, you you basically, the parasite would prolong her laying sequence by a day or two days or whatever it is. Yeah. I don't don't think that really has an effect on the the overall nesting season, if you will. It would certainly, though, for the parasite, it would, you know, it would certainly prolong her period of egg production for sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. I want to ask you. Well, I got a bunch more questions I want to ask you, but uh, I want to ask this one, and then I want to get a hunting story from you, and then get you on with your day. But I've noticed over my years of traveling and hunting that there's really not a huge difference going from north to south across the country in the timing of the breeding cycle of turkeys, mm-hmm. and I don't 
think there's a whole lot of science to dispute this other than, you know, we know that weather does have some sort of an effect on nesting, but we know that daylight, the amount of daylight during the course of a day is the determining factor of when a, a hen recognizes the fact that it's time to start breeding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just, last night I just kind of pulled up on the internet and I think, I can't even remember the site, the website that I went to, but I think it's something like dayandnight.com or something like that. I, timeanddate.com is the, is the site. And I just went and looked at how much daylight Birmingham, Alabama has on March the 16th, which is when season opened this year. Mm -hmm. And I went north from there and said, how much daylight does Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania have? on March the 16th, 2019. And there was less than two minutes difference in the amount of daylight during the course of the day on March the 16th, which is when Alabama seasons opened, and the amount of daylight that, that they were getting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the season doesn't open in Pennsylvania until April the 27th. Right. So a full almost 45 days. It's about 42 days or something like that. Later, Pennsylvania season starts. So can you share a little bit about the science behind opening a hunting season, maybe a couple of weeks later than some of them should be opened? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm kind yeah. of getting it, getting to the point that I think Alabama season opens too early. Yeah, there's, okay, yeah, so the science behind the seasons is, and I, let's be frank, most seasons are set based on tradition mm -hmm. and most most turkey hunting seasons are set based on tradition rather than science the the science suggests and this was published in the 90s and, and a guide bill healy was one of the co-authors on this guide for states to use in setting their season frameworks and he, he notes in this in his recommendations that the seasons should be opened on or around the time of peak incubation with the idea being that you would want a time harvest where you had most of your hens on the nest, therefore minimizing illegal kill because hens would not be as active. Right. And two, your breeding would have already occurred for the most part, and therefore your males could be shot. Some, some percentage of the males could be shot. And in reality, what you see, and I'm speaking again in generality, some states do a better job of this than others. But almost without exception, states open their season before peaks and in incubation, and in some cases, a full month before peaks and in incubation. Mm -hmm. to, for perspective, peaks and in incubation in the latitude that I'm sitting at right now is around April the 15th. So for much of the, much of the southeast, you see that peak incubation is anywhere from the first week of April, first, second week of April, something in that range. Now, again, it can vary, you know, some years it can be like this year, for instance, we're a little bit later this year, right. which I expected because we had a, a poor mass crop in much of this part of Georgia and birds came out of the winter in a little bit lower body condition than they would ideally be, takes them a little longer to recover, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, let's just say first, second week of April, and as you as you noted, many states open well before that time. Right. So along kind of the same note, how much could shortening a season reduce human predation of turkeys to help bring the population back? And I know that is such a broad question, but 
I mean, everything that I've read states that humans are the number one predators of adult male wild turkeys. Mm -hmm. And we, despite what some of the science says in that a hen only has to be bred one time and she's good to go to nest for, you know, 10 or 12 eggs. But we all think that having gobblers around to breed these hens over a longer period of time is better than him being one and done and, you know, only getting a a short period of time to breed hens. Mm -hmm. And so I'm asking this mainly because Arkansas turkey hunters, their season has been cut way back. Their season's two weeks long. And they're moaning and groaning, and I completely get it totally get it as a hunter as a conservationist i have to look at it and say it makes sound biological sense to me at least in my head but i'm no expert so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i know shortening a season or lowering a bag limit and we're assuming people are still obeying the law seems like it those things would have a positive effect on populations assuming all other factors are equal yes yeah so uh, there's there's a lot in that question but i'll i'll address (laughs) as much as i can so this notion that that turkeys are one and done all all we need is one tom and he only needs to breed this one hen that is in a biological sense partially true but from a practical standpoint it's absolutely ludicrous and then here's why turkeys look the way they do they they have this obnoxious display they have this vocalization they have this gobble they have spitting they have drumming they have this ornaments all over their head they have iridescent feathers they have all of that driven by sexual selection and what that means is he looks like that because he needs to attract attention to himself and he needs to stand out to a hen and we sit back and we look at these birds and they all look the same to us but that's not the case in the turkey world so what she's supposed to be able to do is pick the best males not one she's supposed to be able to predict based on cues that she's seeing from him he's better than he is. And therefore, I'm going to breed with him. And then I'm going to go breed with somebody else. And that's why you see multiple paternity in clutches. That's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. That that's the way it's supposed to be. So when you have a hen that only has access to one gobbler, and there are no other gobblers, that's not the way it's supposed to function in the turkey world. So the other thing that, that, I, would, that I would ask people to kind of think about, and, and this... I, like you said, I completely understand from a hunter's perspective. I mean, I, I'm I'm fanatical about hunting. And if you told me that I, I don't have as much opportunity to do this activity that I cherish, that's not, I mean, I have a problem with that. Yeah. But when I step back as a conservationist and as a, as a manager and I go, but if you told me that the activity that I cherish, if reducing the opportunity to do that would ensure that this resource that I cherish is going to be available for me moving forward, then I would accept that reduction in opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't be necessarily happy about it at the first, but I, I would I would embrace it. And from a turkey's perspective, I don't think there's any any notion or any possibility that we're not mismanaging harvest in some ways. I don't, there are many, many in the scientific community that agree our season's in many cases open too soon. And we are very likely, if you think about how turkey hunting proceeds, the most vocal toms are the ones you chase. Mm -hmm. If they gobble a lot, you go after them. If they don't gobble at all, 
You don't even know they're there. If you kill them, you get lucky. They happen to walk up to you. The most vocal toms tend to be the most aggressive. Those are the birds that fly down and come looking for you or a fight. Those are the ones that we kill. If we're shooting the most vocal and aggressive toms early in the season, either while breeding or before breeding is occurring, is there a chance that we could be mismanaging the take of this bird? And I would, I would say, at least from my mind, yes, that there's a very good chance that we may be removing toms a little earlier than we should if you think about their mating system. Perhaps this notion, for many years, we've sought 30%. That's a number that's been thrown out in the scientific literature for many decades now. 30%, where you could harvest 30% of your toms. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's true. But I find it very difficult, if not impossible, to believe that you could remove 30% of those toms prior to or during the breeding sequence and still have sustainable populations two, three, four decades down the road. The other thing that I would that I would say is, from a turkey's perspective, and we see this in waterfowl and many other birds, males really ratchet up to competition when they know a hen is laying. Because if he can breed with her while she's laying, he is guaranteed to be represented in that clutch. So if you have a hen that's started her laying sequence and she breeds with a tom, he is going to be in that that clutch. And therefore, it makes complete sense that you would see males kind of increase their competition, they're gobbling, they're fighting, they're displaying as they encounter hens that are laying. And that speaks to me and says, well, you know what? At that point, I want lots and lots of toms running around because I want them breeding with those hens. And if, if laying is occurring in late March or the first week of April, then I would, I would just ask people to think about it if that's the case are all these males expendable and i think common sense would dictate no they're not maybe maybe all of them are important or most of them and if that's the case then then we may be opening our our seasons a little early Mm -hmm. and i you know the harvest thing is a as like like fire is very contentious you know if you want to want to flame somebody start talking about reducing hunting opportunities if they're a passionate hunter and i get it mm-hmm. i get it but you know harvest is one of the few things we can control right we, we can't we can't control habitat at broad scales and 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 you know i hate to say that but it's reality i mean most turkeys live on private land and therefore state and federal agencies they manage a, just a tiny tiny footprint if you think about the big picture so we're not going to be able to change at, at large scales across states and across you know regions we're not going to be able to change habitat instead we change it at, at the local level and and does it have an impact sure it does but it's not something we can control at, at broad scales we can't control predation at broad scales we can we can go trap or remove predators on this spot or this spot. Mm-hmm. And yes, we're going to have some tangible effect on birds right there. But again, turkeys are operating at large scales. Hunting and harvest is something we can control at, at large scales. Mm-hmm. We can change or adjust how we're doing this activity and, and the potential consequences to the population. We can change that. Now, will it matter? I don't have the answer to that, but I'm I'm trying really hard, working really fast to try to provide those answers. But it seems to me sensical that we could be having an effect on this bird by the way that we're harvesting it. Very good information, and I'm not the expert 
in this. You are by far the expert on this compared to me, but I can't help but think that we've got more turkey hunters in the woods now than I think we ever have. And at least I can look at my state because I know their rules, their regulations better than I know any other state around or any other state that I've hunted. And I can't help but look at our bag limit and our season length and think that humans are and have become a much bigger predator on adult male wild turkeys than any other critter in the woods. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you did. You hit the nail on the head when you said we can we can have a little bit of control over predators, coyotes and coons and possums and everything else, but we have a great deal of control over ourselves. And, you know, I, I'm, I think we all are on the same page in the respect that we want some changes made so that we can ensure that the population is going to be strong and be here for not just us a couple of decades from now, but for future generations as well. But, man, it sure is a juggling act, you know. Uh, those guys oh, absolutely have it tough, but, you know. I, I yeah, can... I don't, there's no question. And, you know, again, it's a it's a contentious topic, yeah. no question. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think if you look at, at turkey hunters now compared to, say, 20 years ago, I mean, if you look at how efficient the tools we have available to us in fact i you know i just used some of these tools on a trip that i just returned from and and i would have never considered using those years ago because we didn't have them you know fanning what was that you know the apps on my phone to tell me exactly where that bird is and how i need to get to him you know turkey hunters now as many hunters are a lot more efficient and effective i think than they have been and and if that's the case, then the the way that we're affecting this bird through our hunting activities could be more impactful than what we've believed. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just mentioned it, and I want to end the call with a hunting story. So you just have returned home from a hunting trip to Nebraska, and mm-hmm. Nebraska is a is a great destination spot for us turkey hunters, and they welcome us there with open arms. They welcome our wallets with open arms. So, <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. Yes, they do. Can you share the story of your recent hunt there and were you successful and tell us a little bit, I guess, very quickly on the story of yeah. your harvest? Yeah. So I had never been to Northwest Nebraska and had, had wanted to for a number of years. So took the opportunity this year with a couple of buddies and we found some private land that we could get access to and paid the, the rancher a little bit of money to, to let us hunt it. And he gave us a map and said, here, here you go, have fun. And with no institutional knowledge and just a few days to, to hunt, we, we started scrambling and scouting and we, we found birds and, and there were quite a few birds. They were, they were more difficult to hunt than I had envisioned. Those Merriams, they, they moved, man. They, <laughs> Yes, they do. They act like Rios on steroids. They they were they were moving and they would they were almost like it was almost like hunting pronghorn in some ways. You you were just constantly trying to get in front of them. And we made it work. We had a we had a great trip. It's a beautiful place. The bird I killed actually I was absolutely stunned that this happened. But we saw this bird the first day of the hunt on the opposite side of a river that we did not have access to. And we tried to call him across. And of course, you know how that usually ends up going. Mm -hmm. He refused. 
so we left him and we started looking around and we noticed obvious adult male tracks all over sandbars on our side of the river and we could not find any activity elsewhere we looked we looked we looked thinking there have to be other toms on our side of the river and in, re- and in reality, there were not. It was him. He he was flying across that river. So the next day, we ended up killing a bird elsewhere and remembered that about 2 o'clock, we had seen this bird in this field walking the riverbank. So we crossed the hill, and lo and behold, there he is. He's about a half mile to the east of us walking down the field. So we called that bird across that river, and, and I shot him. And he hemmed and hawed and paced the riverbank for a while the the humor here is some kayakers actually paddled through our hunt while while we were trying to to call this bird across one of the kayakers saw the bird and starts pointing hey look at the turkey look at the turkey and we're like oh my gosh this is a bust and he squatted down i was looking at him with my binoculars he squatted down and let those kayakers go by almost like a hen sitting on a nest. Mm-hmm. And after about 10 minutes, he stood up and he went to the riverbank and we're, you know, we're calling him trying to get him to cross and he, and he flew across. I've never had anything like that. I've, I've obviously had times cross little creeks and jump a fence or whatever, but this is a river it, and I'm a river. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was the Niobrara river. He flew across and I thought that was pretty remarkable. It was a, it was quite a memorable experience. So, yeah, we had a great hunt, and we all were able to get a bird, and, and they were, most of them were brightly white-tipped, so we were, we ended up having a really good trip. That's awesome. I always love hearing the stories of trips like that where, you know, you are going into something blind, and you end up figuring the birds out and having some success with it. So those are always fun hunts and fun stories to hear. Yeah, the the, the thrill of the chase and, you know, going with an outfitter and, and having someone guide you and show you where birds are. I mean, that's that's fine. I've done that, and I've enjoyed, you know, the heck out of doing that. But those hunts where you just strike out and you have a piece of ground and, and you make it work, those are, the, those are the hunts that are memorable to me. Yeah, no doubt. Good deal. Mike, man, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us and talking about some of these hot topic subjects and shedding some light on them, at least for me. And I'm sure the listeners probably learned a little bit less than I did because they're all smarter than me, but I'm I'm sure they picked up on a few things along the way. And so would you want to throw out your social media handles? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I have a, I have a Facebook page. I, I, I actually use Facebook primarily for my personal things, but I, I have a, a column, based, I guess you could call it that, a post that I make every Tuesday called Turkey Tuesday. I just started doing that a few weeks ago where each Tuesday I'm going to put something out. This morning I posted a picture of some brood habitat that I visited yesterday where one of our marked birds was brooding. And, and the point of that is just to get people to, one, put some information out that folks would be interested in, but two is to start a dialogue of you know, of this bird and, and how we're going to, to better manage it. So you can, you can follow me on Facebook. I also have an Instagram and a Twitter account. It's a wild Turkey doc is the account. And I post routinely on Instagram and, and Twitter. I tend to use Twitter more for, for little birds. You know, there's character planets on Twitter. So 
you, you get some information, but you get it in, in little pulses that you will. Whereas my Instagram account, I post some longer, you know, subject matter, but anyway, yeah. I mean, folks are obviously, you know, if they want to follow me on social media. I, I try to put information out at least once or twice a week that, that should be of interest. Awesome. Again, thank you very much. And, I am looking forward to going back in and editing this episode and getting to listen to it again. There's just too much good information in there to only listen to it one time, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to go back and listen to it multiple times. We just can't learn enough about a bird that, or really any animal that we hunt and that we love to chase, and so, you know, these these things that we learn help make us better hunters, but I think so much of what we can learn from this today is going to help make us better conservationists, and maybe, you know, maybe it'll spark some people to get in touch with the powers that be, some of these departments that are handling some of these burns, and, and some of the individuals that are helping to set our seasons and bag limits, and lobby for some change. So Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're everyone has a voice, and we're all in this together, and I think every turkey hunter wants the same thing. We want lots of turkeys on the landscape, and we want to make sure we have access to, to quality hunting in the future. So I would encourage people. I mean, we all have—our collective goal is the same. We all have different perspectives and, and, and ways of looking at things. But you know what? If you have concerns, make those concerns heard. And part of—obviously part of this conversation was focused— primarily around the science and i would just i would encourage people if if there's science that can be used to further the narrative that that we need to further then use it and if i can help provide any of that or provide information on colleagues that could provide it then i'm more than happy to do that awesome well thank you again sir i hope you have a great day and i hope you're able to get into the woods and hunt at least once or twice more i know you've got a lot going on but you guys still have another couple of, or another week to go. So good luck out there and be safe. And let's do this again sometime in the not too distant future. Sounds good, Andy. All right, Mike. Thanks a bunch. All right. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Goodbye. I hope that you enjoyed that interview at least half as much as I did. If you did and you want more, then I encourage you to follow Mike on social media to learn more from him throughout the months to come. Man, there was just so much good info in that call. That's got to be one of my favorites now. Hey, if you enjoyed the interview with Mike and learned just one thing that you did not know before today, then do me a huge favor and share this episode on social media for me. Just share the post on Facebook, which you can get from the I Am Turkey Hunting Facebook page, and retweet this tweet on Twitter as well. If you need a reminder there, My Twitter handle is at turkeyhitman, H-I-T-M-A-N, hitman. If you'd do that for me, that'd be a huge help for me and for the show as well. Okay, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. 
and make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.